John Stuart Mill is easily one of the most influential philosophers in the 19th century, if not all of history. A person who's heard of the word liberalism has probably also heard at least a little bit of information about Mill himself. He spent his whole life attempting to implement liberal-minded reforms in England. Today, most encounter Mill by reading his seminal work on liberty, which is considered by many to be one of the most excellent defenses of not only free speech, but also liberalism at large. Mill's father, James Mill, was an ardent reformer and a companion of the famous founder of utilitarianism, Jerry Bentham. Mill's father had decided that Mill would be given the foremost utilitarian education, and he would change the face of the world. To this end, Mill was given an education unparalleled in its depth, breadth, and early onset. Mill learned Greek at the age of three, Latin at eight, and read all of Plato's dialogues in the original Greek before his tenth birthday, making me feel really bad about myself. He was also a tutor by some of the brightest minds of his day, including Jeremy Bentham, the economist Dave Ricardo, and the classicist George Grote, who I've covered before. He had to study a wide array of topics, but he was also charged with teaching his younger siblings what he had learned. So as not to dull his mind, Mill's only contact with other children was to his siblings, ensuring that he only conversed with the best and most educated minds of his day. The results of his father's demanding education and mindful pursuit created an extremely competent thinker. Later in his autobiography, Mill would state that, if I have accomplished anything, I would among the other fortunate circumstances to the fact that through the early training bestowed on me by my father, I started, I may fairly say, with an advantage of a quarter of a century over my contemporaries. While this education made Mill the man he was, it also broke his spirit. The enormous pressure of his father's expectations eventually resulted in him having a nervous breakdown in his 20s, in which he even contemplated suicide. Thankfully, Mill came out the other end of his depression by diving into poetry, learning of a world beyond utilitarian reasoning and rational logic to the higher ideals of a good life. Mill was well aware that his training had made him into a kind of reasoning machine, and that he lacked a certain degree of passion and intuitive grasp more ephemeral yet necessary ideas. For a long time, he longed for a person to complement his thinking, and he found a person who completed him. Her name was Harriet Taylor. Plot twist of the century, today's episode is not about Mill. He has been thoroughly studied by scholars and popularized enough that if I did an episode on him, it would simply be lost in an ocean of other podcasts discussing Mill's ridiculously rigorous and great mind. Instead, I want to focus on someone who is indeed very Mill-adjacent, but often avoided. I'm talking about Harriet Taylor Mill, the longtime partner and eventual wife of Mill, whom he credited as the co-author of Equal Merit of most of his works. Don't believe me? Check this out. In a letter from 1854, Mill would write to Harriet, I shall never be satisfied unless you allow our best book, the book which is to come, to have our two names on the title page. It ought to be so with everything I publish, for the better half of it is all yours. But, like many talented and outspoken women throughout history, Harriet was subject to constant attacks from her contemporaries in Victorian England, and worse yet, subsequently, her reputation has often been savaged by scholars, who consider her little more than a bad influence on Mill's intellectual purity. My mother has always said that behind every great man is a great woman, and Harriet is a testament to this cliched yet surprisingly truthful adage. Mill never held back when praising Harriet's intellectual abilities and her crucial contribution to his most critical career-defining writings. While it's quite difficult to precisely pinpoint every way in which Harriet challenged and influenced Mill's writings, I want to spend this episode trying my very best to vindicate a woman who I believe to be severely shortchanged by history. Without Harriet, the Mill we know today would have arguably been an entirely different philosopher. So, let us get to the star of the show, Harriet Taylor Mill.
The world of 19th century England which Harriet lived in was entirely different for women. They were not expected to support themselves. Instead, they were to rely wholly on their husbands, whom they would owe absolute obedience to. The lot of women was to be mothers and wives. They could not be doctors, lawyers, philosophers, entrepreneurs, or politicians. These were all fields reserved for men, who were deemed superior in both rationality and physicality to their female counterparts. Of course, a select few resilient and strong women, despite the stigma they attracted, broke the mold, such as Mary Wollstonecraft. But, by and large, women were wives and mothers, and little else. Born in 1807, Harriet's family life was far from ideal. Her father, who was a surgeon, was often cold and cruel to his family, while her mother had a complicated relationship with her children. Thankfully, she gained an informal education at home, which, although by no means prepared her to the same standard as Mill's education, it did foster an early interest in literature and poetry. In 1823, at the age of 18, Harriet was wedded off to John Taylor, a pharmaceutical wholesaler who was almost 30. The couple settled in Finsbury area of London, close to Taylor's business, and considering the general difficulties and unpleasantness of Harriet's family home, she was actually quite happy to be with Taylor instead of being in the home where there was constant feuds. John Taylor was a man of liberal opinions. He was involved with a group of radical Unitarians led by the minister William Fox, who had been an outspoken supporter of feminism, including educated women in his circle. And unlike many harsh Victorian husbands, John Taylor treated his wife with a degree of generosity, care and attention that would have been quite rare. He even encouraged her literary interests. But, despite his best efforts, their relationship was fundamentally unequal. Back then, husbands held ultimate power over their wives, and even if they never used their power maliciously, it hung over women's heads like a crushing weight that could be dropped without warning at any second. Harriet and John Taylor quickly had children together. Three, Herbert, Algernon and Helen. While Harriet reveled in motherhood and diligently raised her children, there was part of her that was always longing for something beyond the duties of motherhood. Her position in life had been decided solely based on her sex. She would later write that women are educated for one single object, they gain their living by marrying. And that object being gained, they do really cease to exist as anything worth calling life or any useful purpose. Basically, once women were married, there was little else to do or progress towards. Harriet loved her children and her husband, but she wanted more from life. And thus she began to write on topics such as marriage, women's rights and divorce from a feminist perspective. Thankfully, an opportune meeting came in 1830 that would change Harriet's life. When she was about 25 years of age, the aforementioned minister William Fox organised for her to meet John Stuart Mill. The two hit it off instantly. Descriptions of Harriet give us the impression that she was a gorgeous woman, being described as having dark hair and a pearly complexion. But still, above all else, Mill was attracted to her personality, which was assertive, unflinching and passionate. Moore recounted they instantly found her to be the most admirable person he had ever known. And most importantly, Mill treated her as an intellectual equal. The two became extremely close very quickly. Surprisingly, John Taylor allowed Mill to visit nearly daily while he was away at clubs. Part of why the pair became so close, at least from Mill's perspective, was that Harriet's personality complemented his own by making up for his weaknesses. Mill had suffered a crisis in faith for utilitarianism, fearing he'd become a reasoning machine that was incapable of expressing higher ideals. Mill admitted that he was more comfortable with a pen in his hand than giving an impassioned speech off the cuff, but Harriet was the complete opposite. She was capable of mustering ideas spontaneously. Harriet importantly gave Mill both the language and the confidence to express himself in terms of higher pleasures. The influence of Harriet's higher ideals would eventually culminate in Mill's 1861 essay Utilitarianism, where he dramatically breaks with his predecessor Jerry Bentham by introducing a distinction between higher and lower pleasures. Eventually, after a year and a half of intense friendship, an unknown event caused Harriet to break off contact with Mill. 
But Mill did not give up. He passionately poured his heart out into a love letter written in French, where he refused to accept their eternal adieu. This letter had its intended effect, and the pair rekindled their friendship and came closer than ever. Lesson learned, always write love letters in French. They began writing essays back and forth on marriage, separation and divorce, a topic they were deeply invested in for obvious reasons. Harriet's arguments within these exchanges later came to shape Mill's feminism within his essay on the subjection of women, which he considered a founding text of liberal feminism. By 1833, three years after Mill and Harriet had first met, John Taylor had become increasingly uncomfortable with Mill's relationship with his wife, and asked Harriet to break off all contact with them. But Harriet refused, and Taylor agreed to a trial separation. Harriet moved to Paris with her children, and was joined by Mill. The two were extremely happy and living together, but were both extremely nervous also at being ostracised by Victorian society. A scandalous relationship would destroy any prospects for Mill's career as a writer and a speaker, which he viewed as the primary vehicle for him doing good in the world. On the other hand, Harriet did not want to bring shame and scandal on her husband and her children. In her own words, she did not want to be the cause of durable wretchedness. Despite loving Mill, she did not want to ruin John Taylor's life by bringing shame and scandal there. Although to a certain extent both Harriet and Mill had wronged Taylor, I think it's pretty admirable that both Mill and Harriet did not ultimately do as they wished, but instead remembered and attended to what they saw as their duties to the family and wider society. In other words, they lived their philosophy. They tried to be moral. The trio were in an odd dilemma, which resulted in a bizarre solution. The three decided that Harriet would return to London to live with Taylor and regularly see Mill, but she would not be a wife to either man. And though this allowed Harriet and Mill to continue their partnership, they still greatly feared the stigma of their judgmental peers. According to their letters, they used to meet at a rhino cage in London Zoo, because everyone around them would be too distracted by the exotic beast to notice them. In a note, Taylor even referred to the rhino as our old friend the rhino. It really is no exaggeration to say that Harriet and Mill were fully-fledged intellectual partners. Harriet edited Mill's work and gave him constant critiques. She was not some fangirl fawning over the wonderful Mill. She disagreed with him and was never afraid to challenge his ideas. The pair even co-authored multiple texts, including a series of articles for a newspaper on the injustices of domestic abuse. The exchanges from their letters unveil a dynamic in which Mill authored most pieces while Harriet provided ideas and criticisms and did a hefty amount of editing. It is hard to tell what is wholly Mill's and what is wholly Harriet's. And this has led to many later scholars assuming Harriet's influence was minimal, and that for the most part, Mill's ideas are wholly a product of his own amazing mind. But this is incorrect. Mill himself acknowledged Harriet's role in no unclear terms. Discussing their collaboration, he would later write that, when two persons have their thoughts and speculations completely in common, when all subjects of intellectual or moral interest are discussed between them in daily life, it is of little consequence in respect to the question of originality, which of them holds the pen, the one who contributes the least to the composition makes should be the most to thought. The writings which result are the joint product of both, and it must often be impossible to disentangle their respective parts, and affirm that this belongs to one and that to the other. In short, Mill did not think that his work was solely a product of his own creation. Harriet was a collaborator and co-author, who often unfairly, according to Mill, did not have her name on his published works. For example, in 1848, when Mill published Principles of Political Economy, he believed Harriet's criticisms and evaluations to be of such great value to the final product that he wanted to include a dedicatory passage in the first edition praising her. But this was scrapped, possibly due to her husband John Taylor's dislike of publicity, possibly due to her own fear. But this dedicatory passage was cheekily kept for special copies of Principles of Political Economy that were distributed only to close friends. Again, 
Mill would later describe principles of political economy as a joint production with my wife. At every single turn, Mill acknowledged Harriet not as a subordinate, but a fully-fledged equal partner. By 1849, Taylor was suffering from cancer, and requested that Harriet care for him as he slowly died. Initially, Harriet declined, saying that it was her duty to attend to Mill first, who was suffering from a hip injury and temporary blindness. But as John Taylor's position worsened, Harriet returned home and dedicated herself to caring for her dying husband, who would eventually pass away about a year later. As opportunistic and morbid as this sounds, at least Harriet can now marry Mill at last. After a two-year waiting period, Harriet and Mill were controversially married after being close companions for 20 years. Their marriage was not popular, with many friends and family openly expressing their disapproval, with Mill becoming estranged from much of his family due to their marriage. Taking into account their circumstances, it is no wonder that Mill wrote in such length and on liberty about his fear of the tyranny of culture and opinion, considering he spent the last 20 years hiding his relationship with Harriet to avoid criticism and disapproval from others. The newlywed Mill family spent much of their married life at home in Blackheath Park with Harriet's children for company. Due to gossip, they increasingly became more reclusive and cut themselves off from society because of the scandal their marriage had generated. They spent their days debating, discussing, and writing content in their own company. After almost 20 years of waiting, the romance had finally been fulfilled. They could finally be together. It is rare that the lives of philosophers so prominently include romantic love, much less revolve around it. But still, the relationship between Harriet and Mill mirrored their feminist commitments to a partnership of equals. Neither dominated the other, despite contemporaries accusing Mill of being too little of a man to control his woman. But Mill had no inclination to control Harriet. He loved her because she was confident. She never pulled her punches when offering critique or refused to compromise for expediency's sake. And he did not want some fragile, submissive housewife that his contemporaries expected. He wanted Harriet. While much of Harriet's work is seemingly inseparable from Mill's, we can see one particular work which is for the most part a creation wholly by Harriet. Her 1851 essay entitled The Enfranchisement of Women, which is worth discussing to view Harriet not merely as an extension of Mill, but a thinker in her own right. While Harriet published Enfranchisement anonymously, it was a relatively open secret that she was the author. Harriet's main point is that the emancipation of women must be facilitated not only by changing laws in the public sphere, but by changing power relations in the private sphere. The power of men over their wives, in Harriet's opinion, was analogous to the power of absolute monarchs over their subjects in the medieval ages. She wrote that, It has reached the stage which the power of kings had arrived at, when opinion did not yet question the rightfulness of arbitrary power. This domination of men and women corrupts the character of both parties. By being denied political participation in the public sphere, women are made incapable of perceiving the common good and become quite selfish. But Harriet also argued that men's characters are made weak by their companions being so enfeebled. Overall, the saddest woman in the 19th century is, in Harriet's words, equally corrupting to both. In the one, it produces the vices of power, in the other, those of artifice. To remedy this, Harriet argues that women ought to be independent, instead of wholly reliant on their husbands, as was often the case in her time. Political independence through voting rights must also be coupled with economic independence. Women ought to be allowed to work and earn their own wages independently of men. While Mill was quite cautious about women entering the workforce and worrying about depressing wages, Harriet believed this was a fundamental to gender justice. She read how infinitely preferable it is that part of the income should be part of the woman's earning, even if the aggregate sum were little increased by it. Harriet believed that both men and women were first and foremost individuals, and that each individual will prove his or her capacities in the only way which capacities can be proved, by trial. By the 1850s, the Mills become quite a reclusive family, only venturing out occasionally for purposes of travel. 
Both Mill and Harriet suffered from tuberculosis, would often travel alone or together to better climates in order to alleviate their symptoms. By 1858, Miller retired from his long career at the East India Company, and the couple decided to travel across France. But, along the way, Harriet fell increasingly ill and fragile, and eventually passed away in Avignon. Mill was distraught after losing the love of his life, and he bought a house near the cemetery in which he was buried. One year after Harriet's death, Mill published his most celebrated essay, On Liberty, which has become a canonical text for libertarians and classical liberals. Mill dedicated On Liberty to Harriet, praising her by writing, were I but capable of interpreting to the world one half of the great thoughts and noble feelings which I buried in her grave, I should be the medium of greater benefit to it than is ever likely to arise from anything that I can write unprompted and unassisted by her. Mill's autobiography recorded how, as with all of his writings, On Liberty was a collaborative effort between him and Harriet, writing that it was more directly and literally a joint production than anything else which bears my name, for there was not a sentence of it that was not several times gone through both of us together, turned over in many ways and carefully weeded of any faults. He even went as far as say that the whole mode of thinking of which the book was the expression was emphatically hers. Mill would eventually die in 1878 and was buried in the same grave as his wife, although the lengthy and heartfelt inscription he left on her headstone meant that his own name couldn't fit in the grave, the one place, ironically, where Harriet's legacy is more prominent than Mill's. But the story of Harriet does not end with her death by any means. One of the most contested aspects of Mill's scholarship is Harriet's influence, which has often been downplayed by scholars until very recently. The history of philosophy is often conceived of as a study of great texts written by singular authors, generally the great man. There is not much of a vocabulary of collaboration within the history of philosophy, and because of this, scholars of the 20th century often do their best to minimise the influence of Harriet, or describe any influence she did have as a corrupting influence in the great pure intellect of Mill. Despite Mill's lavish praise, many scholars agree with their misogynistic standards of Mill's contemporaries, assuming that Mill was exaggerating her intelligence, and in reality, he was merely charmed and transfixed by this woman who simply fed his ego. One scholar has even gone as far as to say that without Harriet, Mill would still be Mill, and regardless of whom he married, his thought would basically be the same. But these kinds of observations are completely divorced from reality. Any married person will tell you firsthand that the person you marry has a colossal effect on your attitudes and thoughts, especially when you treat them like an equal. Another hilariously stupid scholarly assessment argued that Mill loved Harriet because her name was Harriet, the name of Mill's mother and sister. Yes. Mill spent 20 years entranced by Harriet, meeting her in secret and collaborating with her because her name had some sort of Freudian connection. Thankfully, due to the more balanced work of people like Alice Rossi and Joel and Jacob's scrupulous scholarship, we're beginning to get a clearer picture of Harriet's neglected legacy, so thank you very much for that. So why has Harriet been so hard done by then? I believe there are a few factors at play. Firstly, philosophy as previously stated is perceived as a highly individualistic field that does not lend itself well to collaboration. Secondly, Harriet was not loved by Mill's peers, who were philosophical radicals who aimed at reforming the legal system. Harriet, on the other hand, came from a new radical Unitarian background, which argued radical moral reform is what needed, not just legislative changes. Mill's peers in general had a very low assessment of Harriet, often commenting on how Mill overrated her intellect. We shouldn't exactly ignore these comments, but we should also remember that we are listening to the opinions of Victorian Englishmen who often had pretty shallow opinions of women. Harriet was no wallflower. She was a headstrong person who had no qualms asking hard questions and not backing down, at a time when we were expected to be submissive to men. Harriet's unflinching attitude made men pretty uncomfortable. Thirdly, the history of philosophy revolves around great texts, and Harriet didn't exactly contribute a large body of original written work. Instead, she edited critique to Mill's work. She is not deemed as important or original as the esteemed Mill, but I believe this to be a grave error. 
If we consider Mill to be one of the most important liberal thinkers who have ever lived, we ought to think of Harriet as an indispensable aspect of Mill's life and thought. In Mill's own words, she was the driving force behind his most original and celebrated works, such as On Liberty, which is one of my early introductions to libertarian ideas. When I first read On Liberty, I concluded that Mill was a genius and told people that he was the cause of me delving into more liberal ideas. But now I know that I also owe a debt to the forgotten and often criticized Harriet. They say behind every great man is a great woman. But Harriet Taylor Mill fought for a future where we could say beside every great man is a great woman. Thanks, Mill, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Visit the website www.libertarianism.org to find more podcasts like this one. I hope to see you next time.